Welcome, I'm Doug Morgan, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense, where we hunt for the truth in the topics you're not supposed to talk about, Christianity and politics. As a pastor, there's this phenomenon known as conferences that you have to endure. <laughs> um, you're actually required to go to a number of these. And in fact, as a pastor, I went and sought after uh, a number of different conferences from different denominations than I was. Uh, I would make it a point to go to at least one uh, from a different denomination each year. And, and the reason for that was that I wanted to be able to see uh, the perspective of, of different uh, you know, individuals and, and, and thought patterns and, and this type of thing and try to glean as much information as I could as possible. Uh, but these, these conferences would almost always follow the same format. Uh, there would be a speaker that the conference had flown in from some other state, uh, almost always. Uh, you can't have somebody that uh, lives close to you. And, and of course, the reason for that is that, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, right? <laughs> and so um, you, you fly somebody in that, you, you know, you don't know really who they are. Uh, then after listening to them speak, uh, we would break out into little mini sessions and listen to other speakers that had come from a lot closer distances <laughs> and were asked to speak on something specific to their ministry. Uh, all of these speakers were asked to speak because they were successful at, at what they did. And they were, they would glean something, you know, we could glean something uh, from what uh, they were doing in their ministry. And we could take that back to our church and try to implement that within our church. That was kind of the thinking. Uh, that way, everybody would you know, would be able to succeed, right? <clears throat> but how do you determine what success is as a church? And that's a huge question. And and it and it boils down to even more than just a church. How do you determine success even as a Christian? I mean, how do we know that we're doing the right things and we're doing them for the right reasons? Um, you know, when it comes to churches, is the number of people that attend the church, is that how we determine success? I mean, when I would go to these conferences, um, or really almost any time that you, you would encounter another pastor, almost Every single time, the very first question out of their mouth when you see somebody that, hey, Joe, you know, how you doing? You know, besides how you're doing, the next question is almost inevitably, how big is your church now? <laughs> how, how many are you running? <laughs> you know, this type of thing. And so is that really the determinant factor as far as what success is as a church? Maybe it's, you know, making a, a message so sterilized that no one is offended by what you say. Um, many churches have gone that seeker-sensitive route, uh, as they call it, uh, because you, you try to make a message that no one can, 
can argue with and, and no one is, is offended by and everybody is, is attracted to. Um, you know, we see kind of the Joel Osteen type of, of thing. And, and, and he's used that, um, uh, I guess very successfully, maybe I can say, because he has the number one biggest church as far as numbers in the U S uh, where he, his, his message is almost exactly the same every time it is, what can God give you? What has he promised you? What can he give you? You don't talk about sin and you don't talk about anything negative. You just simply talk about you, about, about you. It's, it's all a very selfish kind of thing in my estimation, but it is, uh, it is a route that some have chosen to try to uh, garner success as a church, particularly when it comes to numbers. So how do you attract people to hear a message that describes itself as offensive? I mean, this is a big question. It's something to really ponder. I mean, the Bible has described itself as offensive. 1 Corinthians 1.23 for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. You see, it is describing itself as something that isn't necessarily all that attractive to any kind of people. <laughs> that it's going to offend sometimes. And there's, there's things about the Bible that are awesome and, is, and very attractive. Uh, and, and, you know, love and all this kind of thing is, 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 is great and, it's, and it can be very attractive. But there are points to the Bible and to Christ that are very much a stumbling block. And so how do you attract people with that message? And how do you teach on those type of things and how do we rectify that within our own lives personally when we struggle with parts of the message of Christ? I mean, the answer for a church is the same as it is for individuals. You know, seek God and do what he says. Uh, we Basically, you, you could break this down into this podcast. Well, we, we have a podcast here that doesn't necessarily follow the line of success of other podcasts. <laughs> I mean, we talk about third rail issues. We talk about the things that people don't really want to talk about. Christianity, religion, politics, those are things you're not supposed to talk about. And, 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 and we do it. That is what we talk about here. And we, and the reason that people tell you not to talk about those things in mixed company <laughs> is because it can offend people. It can turn people off. They can not agree with you and not want to be around you or not want to listen to you. So why would people, if they get offended, they hear something that they don't like on a podcast, why would they want to tune in and listen to the next podcast? That's not necessarily a recipe for success when it comes to a podcast. But we do that here, and we do that here because we feel like this is what God has called us to do. So when I came across this article, and it came from Christianity Today, and Peter uh, Scazzaro uh, is the one who wrote it, and he, uh, he entitled it, 
do you follow the right Jesus? <laughs> so let's dig in. It says here that as pastors immerse in Western culture. Now, let me stop here just for a second. You know, I think this is a very good article. It's why I bring it up. And I think there's some really good points that we're going to discuss here. But I don't necessarily agree totally with even the tenor that it's written and all the things that are in it. And we'll, and we'll discuss that. Uh, I mean, he, he kind of gets into this you know, Western culture thing that's, you know, terrible type stuff. But let's, let's, let's continue. It says, as pastors immerse, Im- immersed in Western culture, it's difficult to dis- disentangle our view of Jesus from the Americanized identity we value. An identity measured mostly in terms of what looks good, feels good, and does good. The question arises, what does it mean for us to cross to be cross-centered and follow the crucified Jesus in our context? What are the distinctions between the world's discipleship of Jesus, uh, uh, discipleship and Jesus discipleship. So let's let's define discipleship. Discipleship is well, it's not evangelism. Uh, evangelism is the um, the seeking after and um, ministering to those that do not know Christ, do not have a relationship with a living Christ. Um, the, the there's uh, many people think of evangelism as the person who stands on the street corner with the cardboard sign saying, you know, Christ is risen or whatever the case may be, you know, and, and, uh, and that, that's not necessarily, I mean, it's a part of it, I guess, but evangelism is so much more and, 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 but it's, it's really the seeking after those that don't have a relationship are not, don't have that saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Discipleship is something a little bit different. Discipleship is what happens after someone has uh, accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that discipleship means that it's that growth it is the spiritual growth. It is what happens when, when, we, when we have finally decided to accept Jesus as our Savior and ask him to forgive us of our sins and be able to say, okay, help me on this path, then then what we need to do from there is is grow spiritually. Because the Bible says that we are like babies, basically. We we drink milk like babies, and we we uh, we have a uh, just a rudimentary understanding of of biblical concepts in in most cases. And so we need to um, to, to, to grow in that. And, and as a baby would, would wean itself off of milk and then get into, you know, really smushy foods <laughs> or whatever, you know, uh, and then, you know, I mean, they, they kind of graduate to applesauce, right. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, they kind of graduate into other, you know, really, uh, you know, nothing really hard or you have to really chew on, but then, you know, you kind of introduce those things. Well, that's, that's the same type of thing when it comes to discipleship. We, grow in our faith and our understanding of what it is to to be a follower of Christ or a Christian, right? Uh, so that's discipleship. Discipleship is just growing after we have become a Christian. Um, the article goes on and says, four vice, vices of worldly discipleship are deeply ingrained in the church. Just as Jesus taught the 12, we too must reflect 
these four things categorically, not only because they are illusory or temporary, but because they damage us and the people we lead. So number one, temptation of popularity. Who doesn't want to be popular? The problem is that our desire for popularity leads us to do and say things solely to impress other people. So, so he's talking about kind of the, the people pleaser type of um, mentality within us. Uh, Jesus publicly called out the Pharisees and teachers of the law saying, quote, everything they do is done for people to see. <laughs> Did you hear what I said there? Matthew 23, 5 talks about that. Uh, Jesus called his disciples to utterly, ut- utterly reject showy spirituality for popularity's sake. In fact, he denounces any activity that has traces of seeking approval or uh, admiration. We must give up performance faith and every enticement to serve in order to be noticed by others. Jesus knew the weaknesses of the human heart. He knew the tempting desire to impress uh, and its dangers. And he said to the religious leaders, quote, How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? John 5, 14, or four, John 5, 44. Most of us place a high premium on what other people think than we realize. Consider whether you've ever entertained thoughts about uh, how you're uh, coming across um, as you preach or use an illustration. Do you worry people will think less of you if you share your struggles, for instance? Are you concerned about how many likes or followers you might pick up if you post on social media, and I might even say, you know, or or people that you might lose, (laughs) right, Uh, if you post something. Uh, Our longing to be noticed and esteemed by others uh, uh, surfaces in subtle but recognizable ways, saying yes when we would rather say no, refusing to speak up because we don't want to rock the boat, or remain silent about our preferences and desires out of fear of what others might think. Rejecting earthly popularity is essential for following the crucified Christ. And I I would agree in many, many ways here. The temptation of worldly greatness is another one. Jesus called the greatness, uh, to, to greatness, runs utterly counter to the world greatness he condemns. Worldly greatness uh, led the Pharisees to, and, and the teachers of the law to view themselves as better than everyone else. Their acknowledge of scripture and their, uh, and their legalistic zeal earned them perks, such as you know, the best seats in the synagogue, uh, honorary titles, and status-laden clothing to set them apart. Now, by contrast, Jesus' greatness look more like weakness and foolishness. Um, in fact, here in 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 25, where, and, and, and we, we just talked about this, we used uh, verse 23, but here is in, in even more context. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the uh, debater of his age? 
has not God made foolish and wisdom um, of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see, he he, he talks here about Jesus being born in a manger. He says, Jesus was born in a manger in a small village to a poor family. His chosen leadership team was mostly blue-collar, uneducated fishermen. <laughs> His miracles happened mainly in the backwoods of Galilee, not a strategic place such as Jerusalem and, or Rome. The small towns where Jesus concentrated his ministry and, and miracles, such as Capernaum, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and even his hometown of Nazareth rejected him. The worldly greatness Jesus renounced was at its core a temptation from Satan, Luke 4. Like Jesus, we too must reject power and status as deadly threats to faithful ministry. Now, I, I will stop here just and quickly say, I do not believe that you know having excellence in our ministry or in our life is a bad thing. We should strive for excellence. We should strive to do things um, you know the, the best we possibly can. Um, but there, there there is a limit to that in 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 particularly in how we view what we're doing and why we're doing it, the motivations behind it. He says that the, that the, that there's also um, a, a an area that we need to be concerned about, and that is the temptation of success. Striving for success may be the world's most universal quest, but success is counterfeit faith with the power to separate us from Jesus. We live in a culture where bigger is always better, bigger profits, bigger influence, bigger impact. The church tends to believe the same. We measure effectiveness by the numbers and Bigger is always our goal. If our numbers are increasing, we feel great and consider our efforts as blessed and our intentions as righteous. If our numbers decrease, we feel despondent and regard our efforts as failures. Now, again, I'm going to stop here and say that, that you know, if we're doing something right, oftentimes we do see numbers increase. Uh, in fact, we see even, even today uh, as uh, those churches that um, did the right thing and did not close down their doors uh, for very long uh, with the with the pandemic, um, they're seeing th- those churches are are almost to a man they are seeing real growth in in their numbers, um, and and that's because people are attracted to to those that uh, are doing the right thing, but um, but it's not always the 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 number one thing that we should be looking at this is there, there's a trap here that we need to to be watchful of it continues on and says 
It is essential that we see success rightly. According to Jesus, success is becoming the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in his way and according to his timetable. Theologian Frederick Dale Bruner uh, aptly summarizes the real threat behind success-driven temptation. Quote, we will sometimes do absolutely anything to keep our work from failing. But the movement, but the moment we do absolutely anything to keep our work for God from failing, we have made our work God. And perhaps without realizing it, we have worshiped Satan. Uh, he goes on and says that, that we must expose and reject every drive to succeed that compromises our integrity as followers of Jesus. Not every opportunity to expand the work of God is actually an invitation from God. <laughs> and there are lots of ways that we can do ministry, and uh, we have to definitely keep in mind those type of things. All right, let's continue. The temptation to avoid suffering and failure. He says, imagine Peter, unbroken by his uh, hum humiliating failures, leading the church after Pentecost from a place of smugness and unteachability. Imagine Paul with all of his gifting, drive, and intellect without his uh, immovable thorn in the flesh to keep him humble and focused on Christ. Imagine Moses without 40 years in exile in Midian after murdering an Egyptian. Suffering and failure have always been God's means to transform us from willful to willing, from anxious to patient, from swimming upstream against the current of God's love uh, to flowing downstream, trusting him to take care of us. For Jesus to rise from the dead uh, in, in glory, he, he first had to resist the temptation to earthly glory by refusing to deploy his power and come down from the cross, to suffer and fail so colossally on Calvary proved to be the greatest victory that looked like history's worst moment was, in fact, its most profound. So do you see what he's saying? He's saying that if someone was to come up to Jesus during his time and say, hey, you know what? You're kind of doing things wrong here. <laughs> um, you know, it, if, if they knew he was going to go to the cross and they knew he was going to die and they, and they knew and they could see how he was born. I mean, in a manger, you know, he, he, he didn't he wasn't born like a king. And many came up to him and actually said that very thing. But if he was to come like that and then die like that, how could that be a recipe for success? But it was. And when it looked like Jesus had failed, that they had literally stripped him of everything and they had put that crown of thorns on his head and they had whipped him all those times and they had put him up on that cross and they killed him. It looked like that was ultimate failure. But we know that wasn't ultimate failure. We know that actually that was the profound moment when success was happening. 
He continues and says, For me, I seek to save myself whenever I set down my cross to avoid failure. When I uh, launch initiatives out of impatience, when I make hasty decisions, and when I frantically overwork out of fear of ministry might decline or stagnate. To set down your cross is to succumb to Satan's temptation to worldly acclaim, greatness, and power. In doing so, we only become our own saviors and miss out on truly transformative work God would do in us. Crosses are required to follow the crucified. And he he puts in here, un-Americanized Jesus. To take up your cross as Jesus commands is nothing short of groundbreaking and culture-defying act of rebellion against much of Western Christianity. And again, you know, I, I, I would not uh, go as far as, as to, uh, you know, put down our culture or anything like that. that um, but uh, I think that one of the things that we do is we do see within our ministries and even within our personal lives, we, I mean, when we pray, do we pray for others? Do we, uh, do, when we worship, do we worship for others? And when I, when I say that, I say, you know, when, when we pray out loud, are we doing so so that we are trying to impress uh, other people? Are we trying to, to, to worry about what they would think? Oh, I better not say this, or I better say that, or I better do it this way, or I better, better do it that. Um, that. Then what we're getting is what the Bible says. We're getting what we deserve. We're getting the attention of other people. But that's not what prayer is about. What prayer is about is, is literally talking to God. And hearing from him. And we have this conversation with, with, with Christ. And we have this conversation with, with a living God. And, and when we're talking to him, it may sound kind of weird. It may sound different. It may, it, it may, we may say things that, you know what, people might not even like. But we're being real. We're being real with God. And so, you know, what, th- this, is, this is the message here, I think, that we need to h- take out of this. Uh, when we worship, are we worshiping God? Are we literally talking to Him through song? Are we literally expressing to Him what we feel about Him? Or are we trying to, you know, make sure that we don't hit a wrong note and other people would think poorly of us? Well, you know, you may agree and you may disagree. And I would love to hear from you on this. Uh, you can always do that, of course, at uncommonsensepodcast.com. And if you haven't been there recently, I, I please take take a listen. Um, you can get your your current podcast there. Um, I'll even go back and and see all the different archive podcasts. Uh, there's a blog there, um, and and merchandise you can uh, purchase merchandise which helps our podcast. Uh, and and if you have too many T-shirts or whatever, um, you can always we, we just uh, put on a new button down toward the bottom, and it's a donate button that helps us as a podcast uh, continue to do this. Uh, we do have monthly expenses that that we have to cover, and and uh, if if you like what you hear, or, you know, don't, even don't like what you hear, but you know what, you want to help us out anyway. Uh, there's a donate button uh, for that as well. And again, thank you for listening.